welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Erica Goldberg, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Dayton School of Law. We will discuss her article, First Amendment Cynicism and Redemption, which will be published in the University of Cincinnati Law Review. So welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. And just so listeners know, this is actually the one-year anniversary of the Ipsodixit podcast, and I couldn't be happier to have one of my favorite legal scholars on the show for the one-year anniversary. I'm a big fan of your work, Erica, and you know I read all your articles, and I think they're all fantastic. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Of course, and happy podiversary. Thank you for doing this podcast. <laughs> Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, so your article, this particular article for me, like, is so informed by the rest of your work on First Amendment issues and like all of the writing you've done in in this area. But I, 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 I kind of like everyone knows what the First Amendment is, but I really would and what it does. But I'd really like you to talk a little bit about this idea of First Amendment cynicism, right? Because I feel like this is like a really kind of deep observation that you're making about the way we talk about and think about the freedom of speech and the First Amendment. And I wanna, I, I, I want you to kind of like lay out for listeners sort of like what's going on and how you think about it. Yeah, so I define First Amendment cynicism as the disingenuous application or non-application of First Amendment doctrine to further goals unrelated to freedom of speech. So essentially sort of cynically using the First Amendment when you don't actually care about free speech or when you think it actually should apply, but you don't want it to apply for other political reasons. Um, And I think this is important um, because the First Amendment, above all, in my view, has to be administered in a principled, apolitical fashion. And I know that words like neutrality are out of favor, but um, part of the ambition of the project is to sort of resurrect ideas about how um, free speech in particular can be apolitical and to sort of chart the fact that I still think it very much is apolitical, um, although people are losing faith in it because of so many accusations of First Amendment cynicism. And those accusations being um, specifically First Amendment Lochnerism by what we might call the political right, sort of expanding the First Amendment in a deregulatory way that's disingenuous, and sort of First Amendment abandonment by the left. Uh, you know, not caring anymore about free speech because you've put other goals, potentially political equality, above free speech. Mm-hmm. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that sort of political use of the sort of cynicism about about free speech and about the First Amendment. And in particular, this sort of idea of First Amendment Lochnerism and sort of how that plays into the way that people are talking about free speech today. Yeah, so I've read a number of really high quality articles 
that have accused the court or at least described a phenomenon in which uh, the First Amendment has been Lochnerized. And obviously, Lochner is the case where um, the court took due process or freedom of contract that was potentially underlying due process to overturn minimum or I'm sorry, maximum hours laws. Um, and, um, you know, people are saying that now, because Lochner is dead and it's anti-canonical, that people, uh, namely justices on the right or scholars on the right, um, are trying to use the First Amendment to accomplish what Lochner could have accomplished if it hadn't been overturned and reviled and all these things. Um, and, you know, it's permeated into the public sphere so that people who may or may not have a great grasp in the actual cases now believe that justices are using free speech principles to accomplish ends that really are unrelated to free speech and, and maybe are just bad ends in general. Uh, and that's causing an overall erosion of faith in the First Amendment, which is horrifying to me <laughs> particularly. And so I wanted to tackle this topic just to say that, you know, the First Amendment has a lot of different potential interpretations uh, and that where we're going in this moment of interpreting the First Amendment is not necessarily uh, Lochnerizing the First Amendment. Um, especially because, you know, free speech is an enumerated right and Lochner was based on substantive due process, which is a whole other separate uh, debate. But, you know, I want to say that um, what the justices are doing when they uh, apply the First Amendment expansively, I believe is often correct, or at least is a reasonable path to take, to follow uh, in terms of First Amendment jurisprudence, hoping to restore some faith in what's currently happening in the application of the doctrine uh, so that people believe in free speech again. Well, so so one of the things that, that really struck me about your paper was the way in which you observe that there's almost a kind of like Princess Bride-like quality to the way that people conceptualize the First Amendment politically. And that, so like, it's like cynicism piled upon cynicism, or, or at least the potential for cynicism piled upon cynicism. I, I mean, I, I, I wonder if you could, if you could spend a moment kind of describing how that works and why you think that could be a problem. Yeah, so um, I currently believe we have entered a vicious cycle of First Amendment cynicism, where accusations of First Amendment cynicism uh, are believed. And, you know, these accusations may or may not be accurate, but accusations of First Amendment cynicism are believed. And then people say, well, if my opponents are going to cynically, my political opponents are going to cynically use the First Amendment, then I'm going to cynically use the First Amendment. And then that is perceived by the original political opponents who double down on their First Amendment cynicism. And this is one potential problem that's caused by loss of faith in a principled, neutral First Amendment. Um, and then there's also, and this is going to uh, present an infinite regress problem that we don't have to totally get into, but there's also what I would call second order First Amendment cynicism, which is that now we've entered this realm where people are so cynical about free speech that um, 
sometimes accusations of First Amendment cynicism are themselves cynical. So you can accuse your political opponent of a cynical use of the First Amendment in order to accomplish some political goal unrelated to free speech. So if you say, hey, look, the left has abandoned free speech, uh, you know, and you point to examples that, that may or may not be accurate, you may be doing this to further some other political agenda unrelated to free speech. And then that makes the cycle even more vicious. Part, part, part of the issue that, that struck me in your paper was the way in which historically the First Amendment and sort of the protection of speech has been perceived as a kind of left-leaning or kind of progressive value. And yet in recent decades, there's been some skepticism about sort of free speech and the First Amendment and First Amendment values coming from the left in terms of thinking about political goals, especially uh, progressive politics. So, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the political values of the First Amendment and their sort of relationship to progressive politics and sort of how people on the left can and should think about free speech. Yeah, so maybe if I could, uh, without personalizing this too much, maybe if I could use the ACLU as an example here. Um, And I don't talk too much about the ACLU in my paper, but I think this is a good example of the phenomenon at work. Uh, So the ACLU, a very progressive group, very principled about free speech historically, famously represented neo-Nazis when they wanted to march in Skokie. This was viewed as the epitome of principled free speech protection. Um, And progressives, including the ACLU, uh, originally maybe got into the business of free speech. I mean, I'm sure they cared about the end of free speech in and of itself, but, you know, the First Amendment used to protect communists, radicals, um, and, you know, that's changed. And as that's changed, some people who uh, originally were huge proponents of free speech seem to have backed off on the desire to go to the actual limits of the First Amendment. Now, they would argue back that what's happened is actually the First Amendment protections have expanded beyond what they were originally meant to protect, and they're just holding a principled line. But I would say that, you know, people have been, in terms of the First Amendment, compromised because of their political commitments to other goals, um, and progressives in particular, goals of uh, equality, potentially. Um, Of course, uh, there's an article by Kathleen Sullivan called Two Conceptions of Freedom of Speech or Two Concepts of Freedom of Speech. Um, And it talks about how there are just two different views of the First Amendment. One is a view of free speech serving political liberty, and one is a view of free speech serving political equality. Uh, And if you and I think both are um, important and not uh, incorrect ways of viewing the First Amendment. Ultimately, I think we should mostly be relying on uh, free speech as liberty, although, you know, using free speech as equality in certain uh, situations. 
um, that call for it, that preserve the sort of apolitical nature of the First Amendment. But, um, you know, I wouldn't say that progressives have abandoned free speech. I think Kathleen Sullivan's point that they have a conception of free speech as political equality is well taken. Um, that said, uh, I do think that certain individuals, and I, I will say, I think that the ACLU has lost its way and started letting other things, um, other goals, um, and sort of a desire for more activist government in certain areas overwhelm their interest in freedom of speech. So, so what about this, like this problem or this idea of, of political equality and, you know, and political liberty, like how, how can and should we reconcile those, those two values? Yeah. So I think, first of all, there are a number of cases that serve both values. So the values are not always uh, in tension with each other. So one of the cases I mentioned in the paper is Packingham versus North Carolina, where convicted sex offenders were forbidden from using certain sites on the internet if they could potentially interact with a child. And this meant that people who had served their time uh, couldn't access sites like NewYorkTimes.com, potentially, removing a wide swath of avenues for speech from their uh, reach. And, you know, this was a decision where um, not a single justice would have voted to uphold that law. Uh, it was an, only an eight-member court. I think one justice did not participate in the decision. But every single justice said this law is unacceptable. And that, I think, is because that case is a nice example of serving both free speech as liberty, um, because we're saying the government cannot, in this tyrannical way, remove your access to freedom of speech, but also free speech as equality, um, saying, you know, this sort of marginalized population uh, can't be excluded just because there's a social stigma placed upon them. And in some sense, the government doesn't have to just give them liberty, but now the government has to, in some ways, subsidize their activities, because this is going to make it harder to catch sexual predators, um, because we can't just remove these avenues for them to engage in illegal behavior. And so because you have this nice overlap of free speech as liberty and free speech as equality, um, you know, all of the members of the court can agree and we can feel, at least from a free speech perspective, happy about the decision, even though, you know, uh, convicted sex offenders are a population that we hope will never recidivize. Um, you know, in cases where free speech is liberty and free speech as equality, or what I would call the libertarian and the egalitarian views conflict, my position is that the best way to ensure a First Amendment that's both nonpartisan and apolitical is to mostly rely on government non-intervention, so the libertarian approach. And by nonpartisan, I mean uh, the, the court doesn't favor any type of speech over any other type of speech. And by apolitical, I mean ultimately the distribution of benefits and burdens doesn't favor any political ideology if we choose this approach. 
Um, but that said, I do think we still need to use free speech as equality in cases where the government has already intervened. So if it's a public forum, um, the government has to allow equal access to that forum. And in that way, we can still have free speech as equality in certain areas without com compromising both the nonpartisan and apolitical nature of the First Amendment. Mm. So one of, the, one of the things that really struck me about your article was the way in which it seemed to suggest that the court ought perhaps to think strategically about when and why it takes First Amendment related cases and that like certain kinds of cases may not be particularly good like particularly good forums or particularly good vehicles for like addressing the sort of abstract questions that are before the abstract constitutional first amendment questions that are before the court. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like how should the, how, how do you think the Supreme court should think about taking first amendment cases and the kinds of cases it should be deciding? Yeah, so my view is particular to the current cultural moment. And I know that at least chief justice, John Roberts cares a lot about the court's legitimacy and public perception of the court. Um, but I think the justices should also care about the legitimacy of particular constitutional provisions, uh, namely the First Amendment. Uh, and if that is true, the court should currently be selecting cases where we could get large consensus. Uh, and those would be cases where free speech as liberty and free speech as equality are going to overlap. Now, of course, um, there are going to be important First Amendment cases that need to be decided uh, that are going to divide the court. Um, but at this current moment, when there's just a lot of political mudslinging from both sides about First Amendment issues, you know, uh, both sides thinking that the other side is engaged in sort of systematic First Amendment cynicism, right now is a good time to show society that actually there's plenty of consensus uh, on a lot of First Amendment issues. And here's an area where rule of law is still mostly triumphing, I believe. So to, to the extent that the Supreme Court has sort of used the First Amendment to arrive at outcomes that at least some people see as being politically motivated. Do you, you know, do you see that as a an abuse or a misuse of First Amendment values? And like, to what extent should we sort of encourage or want the Supreme Court and lower courts to think differently? about how they sort of operationalize the First Amendment in those contexts. And I, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like, for example, like the, you know, in relation to like unions and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, like issues, like areas where this, where the First Amendment is affecting, um, is affecting jurisprudence in not obviously speech related areas in meaningful and important ways. Yeah. So, I mean, 
mean, Janice is an important example of the current cultural moment, but I think it all starts back with Citizens United, uh, where the court overturned five to four, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. Um, I personally, and reasonable minds can differ, but I personally think Citizens United was correctly decided that you can't ban uh, a documentary uh, or say this documentary can't be distributed uh, because that is just the quintessence of political speech. Uh, so you can limit contributions, but expenditures spent on speech actually just are speech and, um, you know, would cause all sorts of things to potentially be banned, books, pamphlets, things like that. And that was probably the start, um, just because of the way the case was reported by politicians and reported by the media. That was the start of, I think, a really uh, contentious um, perception of misuse of freedom of speech. We are now in a place where maybe the court feels more emboldened to use the First Amendment to hit areas that it never was intended to hit. So, um, you know, in Janus, the court um, said that you can't force public sector union members to contribute union dues that would go towards negotiating collective bargaining agreements because that was compelled speech. Uh, and many people think that Janice was actually just, and even uh, Justice Kagan thinks, that Janice was a way for the right to weaponize the First Amendment uh, to destroy public sector unions. And the majority in that case thinks that they were redeeming this uh, grandiose Jeffersonian principle that you can't force people to uh, spend money on speech with which they disagree or associate with speech with which they disagree. Um, I've read Janice several times, and I personally don't know who is right in that case. I mean, a lot of it comes down to, because of the, first, the way the First Amendment is currently structured, a lot of it comes down to whether or not you think there was a compelling interest there. Um, you know, and, uh, and I, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, it's hard for me to see some of these cases, and maybe I'm just too optimistic or naive, but it's hard for me to see some of these cases as gross misuses of freedom of speech. But let's put that aside. If we think the court is Lochnerizing, the First Amendment or misusing it, I think it is appropriate to call out instances of First Amendment cynicism. But I think the way that both the justices and the public are doing it is not beneficial. What I would really love in my heart of hearts is to, uh, and this isn't in, in the paper uh, fleshed out that much, but is to establish a constitutional culture where justices have to explain uh, not necessarily in an opinion, but somewhere they have to explain their particular judicial philosophy, how it fits into their uh, broader conception of constitutional law, and also where it is that their decisions deviate from their current political views. Basically sort of just showing the public how they're not just political actors. I would love that. Um, and I think that would force justices to I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but I think it would be great. It would force justices to 
have to take account of the fact that, you know, maybe Justice Kagan is right. Maybe Justice Alito was on a mission over time to overrule Abood and just dismantle public sector unions. And Janice was the culmination of this. If that's true, he should be called to account for that. But I think that the evidence would have to be pretty strong. And Justice Alito was not the only one in that Janice majority. And Justice uh, Kennedy was in that majority. And I think he has a pretty just expansive conception of freedom of speech that is not cynical, that is totally sincere. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I, I wonder, like, like, how you would think about or what you would like to see Supreme Court justices ultimately do in terms of kind of explaining their perspective on the First Amendment, right? Because so much of the problem here seems to me to be sort of like like the First Amendment is like a stocking horse for other other values. And like sort of what do you what do you think would make that better? Right. Because that does seem like, you know, like freedom of speech is such a kind of fundamental way that Americans think about their relationship to politics and and government. How should we talk about that? How should judges talk about that value? And how should we think about it in a way that doesn't operate just as a sort of proxy for something else. Yeah, we have a baseline problem here because there is no obvious answer to what should the First Amendment protect. Uh, And so it's not always easy to gauge whether someone is applying the First Amendment cynically or not. Uh, And I do think justices or judges need to do more to justify their decisions, especially in controversial cases. And I didn't used to be of this view that judges should talk more to the public in their opinions. I used to be of the view that law is a sort of rarefied technical skill, and uh, the more citations, the better, and the more you use a somewhat scientific method to the process of law, regardless of whether or not the public understands it, the better, because that's a check on judicial overreach. But I think I've reached a point where... um, The public is reading opinions, and especially Supreme Court opinions, and especially Supreme Court opinions in big controversial cases. And I think at this point, um, you know, in Janus, for example, the majority should have done a better job to justify its decision. Um, And at, at least then, that could have tempered some of the public outcry, or at least, uh, you know, progressives who don't like the decision could say. Well, I disagree with this decision, but there is a consistent methodology being applied here, a libertarian conception of the First Amendment that, um, you know, is fair and that ultimately may redound to my benefit. Uh, and in that way, we keep First Amendment principles alive. And, and I don't think the justices are doing enough of justifying how this decision fits into their broader overall philosophy in a way that will sometimes benefit their opponents and doesn't always benefit them. Because I do believe that to be true. So, I mean, Erica, I also kind of wonder, like, I mean, 
to the extent that people have been criticizing sort of moves in the First Amendment doctrine as being kind of analogous to Lochnerism and and kind of analogizing, as it were, sort of the way that the current court is using the First Amendment to accomplish sort of deregulatory goals. Um, you know, to what extent do you think that those criticisms have have any teeth? Right. I mean, like, part of me looked at some of the criticisms and said, "Well, you know, like some of the." Some of the moves that the court's making are seem perfectly reasonable and normal, right? And then, of course, there's all you know. There's others like Janice, where I think there's a lot more, lot more dispute where people feel like, well, gee, you know, I mean, like this is you know, this is really meaningfully impacting the ability of of labor unions to engage in in political speech. But in many cases, right. I mean, it it doesn't seem all that controversial, right? I mean, like, how should we how should we think about the implementation implementation of of the First Amendment and sort of like the shift of the sort of political valence of the First Amendment in those circumstances? Yeah. So, I don't think that accusations of First Amendment cynicism against the right, the sort of Lochnerization of the First Amendment, are entirely baseless. I think that um, the First Amendment has expanded in a way that is beyond where it should be. And ultimately, that might actually lead to the contraction of free speech rights, because we might get rights that are too broad, but shallow. And I wouldn't want to see that either. you know, we have these cases involving um, mandatory disclosure provisions on commercial advertisers, and some of those are being struck down in ways that seem a little bit suspect. You know, commercial speech um, was invented in the 1970s, uh, and now broadly sort of protects a lot of corporate speech. Although, you know, when um, commercial speech was being sort of given a higher status, a higher protected status than sort of no protected status, that was originally by liberals on the court. Um, so there has been, you know, the First Amendment generally has a sort of nonpartisan valence, um, but can be marshaled to serve people's pet causes. Um, and what I would love is sort of a return to first principles, a a restoration of faith where we say, okay, we've all got to compromise now. Maybe we can sort of roll back some of the expansive protections for corporate speech. Maybe we can draw better distinctions between compelled disclosures and suppression of speech. Maybe we can, in some ways, try to disentangle the Uh, connections that have been made between economic regulations and free speech regulations um, and, you know, show the left that the First Amendment isn't being entirely weaponized. Um, But at the same time, convince people uh, that it's just not always going to go their way. Um, That, you know, a, a lot of these cases, even when they are destructive, 
And I think Citizens United, the result in Citizens United is a bad result. But um, I don't think there's anything we could have done about it from a First Amendment perspective. And I think that's just a hard truth that I'm not sure um, how to get people to digest. But one way of doing that, as you mentioned, would be to sort of not go beyond where we have to go uh, for results that are that seem that seem bad. Well, so so in closing, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect on what you think First Amendment doctrine ought to look like and why people, regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum, ought to accept and encourage the kind of doctrinal approach that you think is appropriate. Yeah, so ultimately, I think that free speech as liberty has to be our um, basic understanding of the First Amendment. Non-intervention, not choosing between speakers, not favoring certain speech over other speech, being very reluctant to create new categories of unprotected speech, and continuing to protect both corporate speech, because it's the speech we're protecting, not the speaker, both corporate speech and, um, you know, really sort of loathsome speech Uh, and saying that the government just just can't intervene in these cases. Um, You know, uh, there are cases where like free speech will intersect with other values, say um, like tort law values and, you know, defamation claims are perfectly legitimate and fine, but uh, they're value neutral. Um, And I'm currently actually working on a paper about how uh, common law baselines should get incorporated into First Amendment doctrine, and it sort of goes to the original intent of the First Amendment. And so, you know, those are kind of separate. Fraud, defamation, things like that, those are all fine. Um, And sort of value neutral, content neutral interpretations of the First Amendment seem fine. Uh, Everybody can get on board with those. but ultimately, free speech as liberty has to be a starting point. Uh, and um, to the extent that creates inequities, because certain people have more money and will this have more power, um, I think that can be remedied in other ways. Uh, you know, you can tax businesses higher, um, n- not with the uh, goal of burdening their speech per se, but with the goal of evening out social structures. Um, and, and then free speech as equality will protect marginalized groups uh, because, for example, the government has to protect people against the heckler's veto. And the government, if it gives out funding to certain student groups, for example, has to give out funding to all student groups, regardless of viewpoint. Um, and, and I think we'll still see that um, the little guy will benefit from a libertarian approach to free speech. I mean, if you just look at something like the Me Too movement, uh, the sort of grassroots Twitter um, initiative that has now blossomed into changing laws, changing culture, changing the way we view everything, provoking a lot of great discussions, that's very decentralized. Um, in the service of what you might call progressive goals, um, benefits from 
a generally libertarian approach to free speech. Well, Erica, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I'm a huge fan of of your work. And I, this paper is great, and I look forward to to reading the upcoming paper that you mentioned. Oh, well, thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. Walter Cole was 5 feet 11 inches tall, 47 years of age, and weighed just 63 pounds. Picture, if you will, a man of my height, a man of my age, weighing just 63 pounds. Those little midgets down in the midgets show less than 3 feet tall, weigh more than 63 pounds. And there, ladies and gentlemen, there he sits, slowly wasting away, slowly becoming atrophied, slowly becoming petrified, slowly becoming mummified and slowly turning to stone, unable to move, carried around from one place to another by his nurse, just like a mother would a babe, yet apparently happy, for I've never heard him complain. Leah Lee, half man, half woman alive. When you go on the inside, I want you to draw an imaginary lion from the very top of its head down to the tip of its toes. And on one side, you'll find the strong arm, the muscular limb, the coarse beard, the heavy features. And on the other side... The beautiful features of the feminine sex. Father, mother, sister, and brother in one body alive.